0: Copy, she's lost.
1: I get radio check. Yeah, radio's working fine. Yeah, copy your personnel. Yeah, copy mate. Yeah, in the zip bag. Yeah, stitcher up there, thanks mate. Yeah, right, I copy that. The JD. Today we've got Warren Irwin um, that we're we're, we're interviewing. What do you what do you know about Warren? You and I have both consumed a bit of his his content over the
0: time. Why do you, Why do you reckon this guy is interesting to the money miners? Yeah, so we've we've followed him for a little while. He he sort of stands out because he he's quite frank, uh, an approach we're quite fond of in in how he approaches the media and how he talks about investing in the mining space. He's also uh, spun a few yarns regarding BreeX in the '90s, which just make for for great listening. And he's written. Uh, some some interesting articles, and he's, he's a fundy, right? So he, Ross, he, sorry, asset management is his fund.
1: Um, and you know some fundies are pretty quiet. They'll uh, they'll go about their business and invest and, and let the returns speak for themselves. I think Warren has a bit of a different approach in the sense that he's very vocal. He um, he, he sets his position, and then in a way he's so vocal. I think he tries to move markets sometimes, um, and, and 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 quite often, you know, the the market catches on to the good thing that he's on. And, and NextGen is a fantastic example of that, where where he was
0: I think the first institutional investor yeah, in Next He had a. Ten percent block at one time, and he's he's been around the block. He's been running this fund, his fund, for twenty five years now. Twenty five years is a long tenure as a fund manager in the resources
1: space. Uh, yeah. you, you sort of, sort of as a as a fundy, you know, don't really um don't
0: don't really see through cycles very often as a as a fund manager in, in resources because it is so cyclical. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure we'll touch on that and ask him the question: How he's managed in such a volatile, such a cyclical sort of business? To to endure, so I think without without further ado,
1: G'day Warren. Uh, appreciate you
0: joining us all the way
1: from from Canada. Uh, understand there's a twelve hour time difference right now, so it's uh, bright and early for you and late at night for us. Um, and and uh, it's it's just it's a pleasure to have you on the line. I mean you're, um, a, you know you've got a, a great reputation of investing in in uh, juniors all the way through to acquisition um and sort of capture that re-rate along the way we think you've got some very interesting stories that our audience would really benefit from and some particularly interesting views on the market um and so you know with that we'll kind of we'd love to we'd love to pick your brain for for as long as we can on on um on those very topics well, I'm happy to try.
0: I'm keen to get an understanding of how you sort of see the, the resource space at the moment, just broad macro things. We've seen a bit of M&A at the big end of town. And yeah, just interested to hear how that looks like from Canada at the moment.
2: From Canada, we're in a very unique situation. Um, uh, th- there's been a bunch of weird things happening here in Canada, which I don't know how it'll end up playing out. But uh, one of the weirdest things that's happened in Canada is we've had our government ban us from selling Canadian juniors to um, Chinese government-controlled entities. Uh, Meaning, uh, if we have a project in South America and we're listed in Toronto as a junior, we're not allowed to sell it to the Chinese. And uh, that's really just thrown thrown a wrench in the whole thing because... As you're aware, with a lot of these projects, especially copper porphyries, copper porphyries take a ton ton of time and money to drill up, let alone build. And as far as you look around the world, the number of entities that could build these massive copper porphyry uh, uh, mines, um, the Chinese are right up there. And if we take those players out of the market, guys like myself are going, well, then who am I supposed to sell it to? I have to now just I'm beholden to, uh, you know, the free ports of the world. Um, and that really, really has thrown a lot of cold water on, um, on the Canadian mining sector, in my opinion. For a lot of people, they don't see that because they don't sell it to the Chinese. But if you look around the world at all the projects that have been discovered and then sold to the Chinese, uh, basically the Chinese are the buyers. They're, you know, It's nice to say, well, you can only sell the Western, com- Western miners, but Western miners, frankly, are not buying mining properties at the pace of the Chinese. And this all stems from, I believe, behind the scenes the U.S. government defense department is putting pressure on all its allies um, to make sure that the Western world has access to a lot of these commodities. And um, so the, the, the issue is they're trying to help, but they're really harming because... Uh, Here I am. I'm going, well, I'm not going to put any more money into finding copper porphyries because who am I going to sell them to? And then uh, even if we do find a copper porphyry, when's the last time uh, you've seen a copper smelter built in Canada or the US? The smelters are in China. So it doesn't really matter where you mine it. It matters where you smelt and who gets control of the copper. So I think a lot of these government policies have really not been thought through. And uh, I don't see that changing anytime soon. So I'm very, very concerned about that because I don't want to be told by our government uh, once we find a, a mineral deposit who we can sell it to. And the interesting thing about it is, you now here in Canada we're buying a bunch of goods from China. So, what's China going to build uh, our air conditioners out? Are they going to, if they don't have copper? Well, where are they going to buy all the goods we import from China uh, if if they don't have the copper? So. I think these policies are a knee-jerk reaction, and, and it's absolutely ridiculous. It's, and, you know, in Australia, you guys have the similar similar issue where the government gets involved in things that they really shouldn't. And, um, you know, I, I'm just looking as an observer outside of Australia, and I, I see what you guys are doing with uranium mining <clears throat> with a massive... Like, I, I haven't been able to figure out where and when you can mine uranium in Australia, so obviously... <laughs> I'll never put a nickel into Australian exploration for uranium, despite the fact that you've got massive amounts of uranium. I don't understand why you don't mine them, mine uranium. It's uh, it's the only way to provide you know any significant, serious base load, non CO two generating. So I don't understand Australia there, and I don't understand Canada here. And uh, these policies, I think, are obviously screwing up the market and makes it increasingly difficult for me to to make investments. Um, to find new projects uh, and uh, I'm trying to get my head around that, frankly.
1: I mean, you're looking at like the M&A that's happening in Canada and we can talk about copper you know, specifically, um, there's the, the, the copper mountain merger, um, I mean, on a, on a broader context, the Glen, Glencore sort of tech behind the scenes stuff is, is, is that sort of deal flow that, that is really not, you know, of undeveloped projects, which, which you speak of and, and more about, you know, consolidation of, of larger companies or, or, um, disruptions to, to commodities. Is that, is that, is that a consequence of that, of the policy landscape? You know what? <clears throat> no, I don't think so. I think uh, what we're
2: seeing here is um, the the larger companies are trying to find dance partners and they're trying to get those mergers done first. They're all sitting on mountains of cash. So they're trying to get those mergers done first. And once those mergers are done, um, then they'll all look, or look at each other and go, well, now what do we do to rely on to get growth? And the growth, the next step will be, oh, geez, we have to actually start building lines. And when you look at Glencore specifically under Ivan Glassenberg, you know, Ivan wasn't a big fan of uh, building new mines. He was—he was basically. I've him on stage a few times, going, "Okay, guys, let's. Why are you building all these mines? Let's not build any mines. Let's just get a lot of money for the stuff we already have. Why are we doing overcapitalizing the market here? Let's not do that. And that leads to the cyclicality of our business. Let's keep supply tight. Let's not build new mines. So, doesn't surprise me. Glencore is doing this because they seem to have a propensity of buying existing production rather than to build build new mines so um i think that'll that'll work i think for the for the mining industry in general until uh until all the dance partners are chosen there's no more dance partners then they go to the next level which is let's make some acquisitions they may start making acquisitions of smaller producers uh and then once they they've hoovered up all the good smaller producers they'll go oh geez you know now we can now we'll start building mines because uh, the sense I get a lot of these big mining companies would 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 rather not build mines. It's uh, it's a lot of work, a lot of hassle, a lot of permitting, a lot of risk. And uh, they'd rather just, you know, trade assets amongst each other initially. But uh, eventually we'll get to the stage where they'll actually want to build some mines and grow production from uh, from Greenfield production, from Greenfield sites.
0: So Warren, that sort of uh, plays into how I've heard you talk about your investment philosophy and you like to, from my understanding, find undeveloped projects and ideally not take them to that stage where you have to develop them, but have the, the majors come in. So how does that sort of impact with, I guess, less acquir- acquirers out there? How does that sort of impact uh, your investment philosophy and the, the projects you're sort of looking at or how you sort of approach the market?
2: Yeah, no, it's interesting there. Like, And uh, just a quick of my philosophy is uh, generally what I try and do is just follow some j- juniors very closely. Where I've had probably the most success is not necessarily sprinkling money to every single little junior with an idea. It's finding a junior that's actually started to to get some traction and invest in them. And the, the types I look at are ones that have, have got some traction. It's clear there's a potential for something really big. and I jump on that, follow them very, very closely. And um, I try not to buy juniors that have projects that are too small because I always want to offload them to majors. So um, they need to have a level of scale that the majors would care about. And uh, in my experience, dealing with small discoveries is a complete waste of time. It might work for you know the retail investor, but for, for myself, uh, I need an exit and that exit is a sale to a major. And generally, they don't care about the smaller stuff, and the smaller stuff is a huge hassle. So I stay away from the smaller stuff. Look for world-class uh, discoveries. Most recently, the one I was involved in is big next-gen discovery. I was the largest shareholder in the early days of over ten percent of uh, next-gen, and that's the world's biggest and richest uranium discovery.
1: And um, yeah, look, both both Jonas and I are very familiar with that with that one. Uh, we we've, we've both taken pretty close looks at, at at Arrow. Yeah, there's a bunch of funny funny. Uh,
2: speaking executives there they almost uh, speak the same language you do um, I think they, they speak Australian uh, some of the senior management company yeah, yeah, so I have to actually deal with it. I have to deal with Australia a fair amount and uh, <laughs> they're quite, quite a bunch the ones I deal with are mostly based in Vancouver they're all um, <laughs> Vancouver or Perth <laughs> yeah well they're actually well the ones in Vancouver they're if any of you guys know that they're quite there are pieces of work uh, they, they love to party they love to drink and have a good time and and some of them find some pretty amazing minds. So, uh, yeah, they're quite a crew, and I, I, I think they're great guys to hang with. And uh, I back them quite, uh, from time to time. And in the case of Lee Courier, Australian guy, and uh, he he did a fantastic job in in you know handling in bringing forth uh, uh, a next gen, and he's done a great job. And actually, there's some Australians on the board too. So there's Australians freaking everywhere. <laughs>
0: That's because there is are Australian shareholders, I'm sure. Warren, I'm keen to go a bit deeper on that sort of investment philosophy you've got. I've heard you on a few talks talk about um, how Rossau is one of the the longest, if not the longest, lasting natural resource fund manager out there. So, what, what's the sort of key reasons you think that you've had that durability through through the various commodity cycles? Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's probably the best thing to
2: say is uh, I'm the, the longest running, certainly here in Canada and in and in North America that I'm aware of. Uh, we're the longest running. Um, uh hedge fund manager focused on the resource space so there are a bunch of people who have like a bunch of the big fund companies have these little resource funds that you know uh grow up to a, a billion dollars in size during the bull market and down to 50 million during the bear market and that's sort really of so they they've been around a long time but um what's unique about us we've been around for 25 years it's one solid record of performance and uh i've been the guy running it for 25 years so it's it's uh, it's very unusual to have somebody run the same fund for 25 years in the resource sector and your question about how have i survived uh it's by being uh, very very nimble and because uh, as you know these resource sound cycles are just absolutely brutal and i remember um, you know, not that long ago, uh, you know, you'd, you'd lose in some of your names, you'd be down 80, 90%. So if you're 100% invested, you're you're in deep trouble when that happens. So um, it's a very, very cyclical market and um, you can really get laid out. And I possibly part of the reason I, I um, have survived and others haven't <clears throat> is I haven't fallen victim to uh, the desire to take a lot of assets at the peak of the market. I remember several instances in Canada where funds have taken uh, you know a couple billion dollars in assets to run in junior mining and boy they get laid out when the time comes and things turn around I'm nimble enough I could get out um, I'm just trying I think at the peak last peak I was around 300 million so that was you know small enough nimble enough I could I could get out of this get out of it and um, is, there, is there a long short dynamic to to the process as well well from time to time there is actually when uh, for instance in oh eight. 8 uh, I was seventy five percent cash, twenty five percent long, and twenty five percent short. So that was probably the most fully hedged I was, and that that saved saved me going through the the big collapse there in the 08 area. But uh, the thing I find is uh, with a lot of these things is is the um, the beta in resource stocks is so strong that if you're long ABC um copper company against xyz copper company when the boom happens mm. the investors don't care a lot of them really don't have the level of knowledge that i may have to to tell the differences between a good copper company and a bad copper company so they just throw their money at both and uh so if you don't want to make any money that's what you do and then is go long one short the other and they both go up so then you nothing really is accomplished so you really it is given the large cyclical nature, it's very difficult to do the long short thing. Yeah,
1: the worst projects that are better promoted get pumped the most. Yeah, and then when the resource cycle happens, you know, all the boats, uh, all the boats, a uh,
2: rising tide lifts all the boats, right? So I've, I've seen this both when we invested in the early days, we're doing a bit of tech investing, same, same story there. So you need to take some risk there. And uh, as far as me making big money on shorts uh, in the resource sector, it's um, it's pretty tricky to do because uh, they're um, getting the borrow on some of these shorts is very is at times very difficult. And and the prime brokers I'm dealing with, it's um, it's very difficult to get them and they won't allow me to do naked shorting, which is, I believe, not legal anyways. But uh, there are people doing it. Um, It's very difficult to short uh, resource stocks. And, uh, so you pretty much need to make sure that you've got tremendous downside protection through your, the asset quality.
1: And so you when you do, when you do take a short position, are you trying to short, um, based on, based on an assessment of overvaluation, or is it based on an assessment of potential fraud or, or all of the above, all of the above?
2: Well, generally shorting juniors is really difficult to do as you can know, they could rip it in your face pretty hard where I've shorted in the resource sector before I could think of uh, tech, uh, I shorted tech when I think it was $18 and I covered when it was four. Um, so that's an instance where I was able to get borrow. It's a big liquid name. Uh, there were concerns, uh, I think a couple of cycles ago, the tech was going bankrupt. So that was a good one for me because uh, it had a, a credit aspect to it. It looked as if uh, they were, they were being stressed very, very hard financially. And um and then, um, but of course, my the lesson I learned from that one was, uh, sure, I made a bunch of money from eighteen down to four on the short, but the real money was made from four to forty dollars when it <laughs> rallied back up. Uh, so, and that's the other thing, right? Uh, you cannot make as much money shorting as you can on the long side. Uh, that 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 tech example is just a, is a is a good one because, you know, if you if you shorted um, you know eighteen dollars stock, you covered it. For Big you Do, you made fourteen dollars. But if you bought it at four and you sh- sold it at forty, you made thirty six dollars. So,
1: but the important thing is you you had the you had the cash available when no one else had cash to to invest it in cheap names.
2: Yes, the other real the the other real gem too. It, it, you, you're talking about keeping cash on on the sidelines. Like that little flash crash of twenty twenty was epic. Because I think uh, NextGen went from, I think it was $5 down to 80 cents. And then within nine months, it was back at eight bucks. And um, sadly, I rode my NextGen shares all the way down, all the way back up again. But I didn't have the amount of capital on the sidelines that I could have taken advantage of that. That would have been a tremendous opportunity. So
0: i've just seen on your website warren as well you you reference use of leverage how do you sort of incorporate that in in the resource space already being so volatile
2: yeah i'm not using leverage uh right now i haven't used it in a while generally when i use leverage is to to take a situation that may not be quite as risky and crank up the risk for instance if i decided to go along a bigger cap name for instance i would um uh, i would take a look at using a bit of leverage but with the juniors that i generally invest in i uh I think they're risky enough. You're exactly right. They're risky enough without using leverage. Using leverage is a good way to get laid out. I've seen uh, instances where, you know, in Canada, you could borrow uh, once the stock's over. You could borrow 50% on margin once it gets over $2 a share. But, um, you know, I've seen so many juniors go from $5 to $1.50 and back up to $5 again. So, you know, those margin calls come hard, they come fast, and there's no mercy. So I I stay away from uh, borrowing when it relates to juniors.
1: So, yeah, Warren, you, you um, you you make your money, large amounts of money. The best wins you've had by investing in these these juniors who who they've got a great project and the the it's not advanced <laughs> enough yet to have full value in the market. And you ride that that wave as it becomes you know valued appropriately and and, and de risked over time. Um, you know, and, and I think um, that, you know. We we're, we're pretty interested in that dynamic that happens with developers, and I think our our audience um, would love to know what y- your thoughts are on some of those undeveloped projects in the in the Aussie market. Is that an area area that you are uh, you play in at all? Yeah, I've I've
2: learned to stay away from the Aussie market, and uh, I know a lot of Canadian investors do play in the Aussie market, but um, I find that uh, it's very difficult to keep a, a relationship with with management and keep up to speed on things and. I find there's a tremendous incentive on management knowing that I'm two blocks away from them I'm so I could walk down the street and punch them in the, head, in the head if they do stupid stuff. It's very, I found it very considerably different in Australia because they, they kind of think, oh, you well, know, there's this guy in Canada, he's 24-hour plane, plane ride away, he's in a different time zone, I can do whatever I want, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So I, I try and stay away from that and... Uh, I find that, um, sticking with, uh, North American juniors are generally, uh, the better thing to do and it has worked better for me. Uh, I, I cannot think of, uh, for instance, uh, in also with respect to my, um, um, my ability to get, get in the trap line with respect to, uh, uh, this Canadian term, I guess I shouldn't use it, but, um, the trap line meaning uh, I have, um, a number of, um, Contacts in Canada are quite a bit better. And I do remember missing out on the serious nickel play uh, some years ago, just because uh, I wasn't involved in uh, that closely enough with uh, the uh, the Australian market that I kind of missed that until the, got, the valuations got pretty high and it wasn't worth me getting involved in it. So I, my trap line here in Canada, I grew up. It's uh, been a bunch of years when I was a young kid in uh, Timmins, Ontario, Canada, which is a big mining big mining town. Uh, it's, a, it's a center for gold mining in Canada. So uh, I've been around the mining business a long time, and I know a lot of people, and um, I find that my my contacts here in North America are quite a bit better than they are in Australia.
1: Well, well look, Warren, uh, both both Jonas and I grew up in um, pretty substantial mining towns here in in uh, Western Australia, and uh, Jonas has got a spare pair of uh, uh, boxing gloves on him. So if you, if you need us to punch anyone in the face, then uh, <laughs> we'll volunteer you to be your associates down under. <laughs> but um, but 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 given the fact that you are you, you're familiar with the Canadian names, there's, there's there is one one dual listed stock um, that's that we've uh, become very closely linked to um, in in the sense that I think it's it's just inextricably linked to our um, our our growth at the moment, and that is our uh, Patriot Battery Metals. So, you know, that, that, what, what, what's your view on, on uh, that company and, and the Corvette dis- discovery, have you got any commentary on that?
2: No, I know some board members on on Patriot. Uh, I have not been following any of the, the lithium uh, and possibly it's just, I've stayed away from lithium because I've been around the world and I've seen a lot of lithium deposits and I know there's massive amounts of lithium out there. So just long-term, I'm not a big, uh, I'm a big fan again of all the lithium because uh you know it's nice to um um uh you know it's it's nice to to have this nice little lithium run here but the reality is i know where there's lots and lots of lithium around the world so i'm not super super duper excited to run around and find it it's like uh people getting all excited about graphite too i'm going man i <laughs> for decades in the mining business when we missed the target, we saw man, we hit some graphite. Oh, damn it. <laughs> but now, Hey, we hit graphite. It's great. Some, some clown in the U S wants to buy our stock. But, um, you know, so I, I stay away from lithium because, uh, I know there's massive amounts of it. And over time, I believe they're going to crack the code on a lot of lithium brines down in uh, Bolivia, which will give us all the supply we need of lithium. And, um, so I, I'm, uh, I'm staying away from that. I, I just because uh, I cannot predict the cycle there when when lithium will eventually uh, collapses more and more supply hits the market. You know, so
0: I'm keen to get your thoughts on copper as well, Warren. So I've I've heard you speak on a, on a panel about it, and the the dynamic sort of being discussed was that yeah, everyone's relatively bullish copper but a lot of the, the inputs, the costs into mining and so on will rise as well as the copper price goes up. So I'd like to sort of get your take on how you go about picking good stocks or do you really just stick to projects you like at an earlier stage? Yeah, and I, try and be, <clears throat> uh, I try and be
2: focused mostly on the project, the economics of it, and the commodity second. There are some commodities that I like. Uh, for instance, copper is one. But increasingly, you know, copper is really tricky because um, if, we, if we as Canadians are unable to sell to state controlled Chinese companies, that really hurts us. And uh, so, almost to the point where, you know, if I was a junior copper company, I would never list in Canada. Um, so, that's one issue. Uh, the other the metals, of course, I like are, are nickel and some others. Um, and But I, I really like it. It's, like, you know, when I look at it, I look at, well, what's what's a commodity? Is that a commodity I think is one I want to get involved in? If it goes, yes, okay. Is it in a jurisdiction i like to get involved in? Does it have a chance of getting permitted? Uh, does it have a chance of having some size? Does it have good people? And uh, what are the capabilities of, of those people, you know, and another Canadian term, putting the puck in the net, right? Uh, or basically making things happen. So if you get those things all together, you um, then you have a chance at it. and even then you could have a, a monstrous disaster with uh, the wheels falling off for a whole bunch of things as, as you know we have uh globally there's um there's all sorts of issues that could screw up permitting uh with respect to um you know local indigenous peoples around the world uh just local communities uh various uh political you know winds of uh of change could change permitting for instance uh, you know you're seeing in some regions uh they're not allowing any coal mines to be permitted which is kind of funny because um people don't understand that there are two types of coal there's med coal and thermal coal and you kind of need med coals to build our build our teslas and our transmission towers to electrify the world and our nuclear power plants so there there's the, the more the governments and the uh The environmental do-gooders get involved in the mining sector, the more they're screwing it up. So we kind of have to work. I have to kind of figure out. We have to kind of be a step ahead of them and say, okay, we're screwing the market up this way. So then we need to do this. But you know, sometimes like this whole Canadian ban on selling to sea controlled Chinese companies just came out of the blue. I'll give you an example too. It was, it came on, it came out just after um, a Canadian company that was an early investor in Neolithium. Um, uh, I was a seed investor in that years and years ago. I've been long out of it. But um in an extraordinary um, Brian situation in Argentina. And so we have the Canadian government telling the company uh, who and who it can and cannot sell a project in Argentina to. So they're taking uh, extra t- uh, territorial um, powers. and they're they're basically telling us telling Canadian uh, Canadian companies who they could sell an Argentinian project to. And, and my personal view on that is Canadian government should have zero say in that. It should be the Argentinian government, whether they think it should be sold to the Chinese or not. And so that's just one of the many unintended consequences of these invo- these uh, government do-gooders and the pressures on the world today. And And I'm not sure if you're seeing this in Australia as much, but obviously there is a,
1: we, we we did have it was it was a bit more prevalent like in um, peak covid times, but you know in Australia we had a, a similar dynamic where um, I think one case in particular there was an ASX listed company with a project in uh, the DRC and yeah. uh, Australia, ultimately, Australia's foreign investment review board, FERB, um, you know, b- blocked a, a, a Chinese associated um, deal there. It was AVZ Minerals, um, a, a lithium company at the time. But, yeah, you know, I think yeah. those the, the, the harshness of some of those FERB denials has relaxed a bit. But, but, the, but don't get me wrong, like it's, it's still a pretty tricky environment, especially to do deals with Chinese entities in Australia. Yeah,
2: my, and the funniest thing I see here in the market is you've got you've obviously got a cold war brewing between the Chinese and and the West, mostly the US. And the US is trying to bring all the allies together to to go against the Chinese. And uh it's it's um the consequences are there are many, many unintended consequences that hurt everybody by doing this because um you know, if if I'm just one person who will definitely think twice about putting money into finding copper, is that going to help the world or hurt the world? And uh and taking a look, DRC is an interesting place, right? Um I tried to do business there some years ago, and uh, I had an outstanding project, and I brought put together an outstanding team, which was going to just set the world on fire in the DRC. I had um, buy-in at the highest levels of the government there, and then uh, as I got more into it, uh, you know, at the lower levels, I started getting roadblocks with people asking for bribes, right? So I had to walk away from that deal. But so you've got a situation here where the DRC is a reasonably corrupt country, and you've got people with their hand out looking for bribes. Uh, Canadians, Americans, Australians are on all under obligations that we cannot bribe people. And then, uh, so we have to walk away from these deals. Well, then who's left? Well, it's the Chinese because they don't care. They'll go in and bribe anybody they want to get, get these projects done. That's why they're building projects like crazy in Africa because, and that's why the West is having a tough time doing it because it's difficult for us to do anything in Africa because, um, because of that. And uh, it's not all the countries. There's some tremendous countries in Africa where everything's um, in pretty good shape, but, but, Certainly the DRC, the, the Chinese are much better suited to doing business in the DRC than than uh, North American companies. And uh, so there's an instance where the very, very tight laws that the U.S. has on, with their Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, impacting American mining companies, it, it's difficult for them to o- operate in the DRC because nobody wants to end up uh, you know, in prison. So who, who fills the void? The Chinese fill the void because they don't care. So... There's a lot of things going on around the world that um, have, uh, you know, there's there's cause and effect, right? So, uh, and now we have, so it's getting much, much more difficult, uh, most difficult in my entire career to actually find a mining project and uh, and have it create value for shareholders just because of all the, all the rules regulations and recently government interference on uh, from many many angles and uh, uh it's it's getting really really tough so um for me how does that impact me well that means that i have to be much more focused and make sure that everybody i deal with uh, is uh you know <laughs> there that there's basically more options than selling to the chinese when we do make a discovery Make sure that we operate in jurisdictions that are um, uh, that are are not uh, not corrupt. Um, and uh, by the time you whittle that down, it really it really cuts back on what countries around the world I could invest in uh, because of the, all the rules and regulations that are building up over the past twenty five years. It's getting very very difficult. And it, this is all happening in a time when, in theory. We're supposed to find metals to electrify the world, and meanwhile, the governments are putting roadblocks at every point uh, to stop us from doing that. So it's, um, you know, I could be frustrated by it, but, you know, uh, it's it's just getting really, really tough to do my job, and it's getting tougher every year.
0: So you talked about how hard it is to find the right team, find the right project, and so on. And then on the other hand, you get all these risks that just seem to come out of the blue or, or are obviously there already. How does that sort of play into how you build your f- portfolio? how many how many names do you like to hold? What sort of position sizes do you do you sort of build? Yeah, for me and myself,
2: I try and keep the the positions less than fifteen. So I try and keep them quite concentrated. <clears throat> it's the only way I could really keep a handle on all the names, like for people who uh, you, you'll see this in mutual fund land where they're invested in maybe, uh, you know, a hundred or 200 juniors. And trust me, there are not, a, there are not a hundred good juniors out there. Right. So I try and cherry pick the absolute finest ones in which are in a, you know, ideally let's say you're in a, an established mining country where you're not, Dealing with uh, people who are not familiar with mining, there's local that and that generally leads to local buy-in. There's also a number of precedents set in those environments, dealing with indigenous people. so that the indigenous people know what to expect in terms of employment and economic benefit. Uh, the people who are in the government that are permitting are well versed in permitting. It can get done in a reasonably uh, quick time frame. And then mining companies are, familiar with it because they're used to operating in a country like that too so that's sort of what you almost have to go go for these days um, because it's increasingly getting very very difficult I'll give you an example like there was um, a uranium discovery in Spain not that long ago by Berkeley Energy and I remember you know the guys at Berkeley coming into my office telling me oh we're gonna get this permitted we're gonna get this we're gonna do this and I said I don't care what you tell me there is not a hope that you will ever get this uranium mine permitted in Spain and sure enough, it's not permanent in Spain. Well, why is that? Well, because there aren't other uranium mines that people can say, well, look, this uranium is mined safely in this jurisdiction. It provides a lot of jobs. Nobody's dying of radiation. Um, it's done in a very responsible environmental matter. And you never, so it, to get that across to the Spanish people in the region without other uranium mines already there creating economic value and showing the good Mining has in a
1: region. It's very very difficult. So if you if you know Berkeley, if you know Berkeley, uh, where It looks like you do know some uh, ASX names after all. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, I, it, was that not listed in the TSX too? I'm not um, sure. I, I know the Aussie listing. Yeah, I, I
2: see some funny Aussie companies come by once in a while, and generally the question I ask myself is, you know, I occasionally have to listen to a pitch from an Aussie company, and I go. The, the one of the questions is usually I go, why am I listening to a pitch from an Aussie company when? um mm-hmm. Like by the time they come to Canada to raise money, they've already, they've already asked everybody in Australia and they wouldn't give them any money. Then they come to Canada.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the equity markets are a bit easier to get away in, uh, in Australia, I think.
2: What usually happens then is then I make a few phone calls and go, okay, who are these guys? Oh yeah, you don't want to invest in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah what do you do what do you do the mining industry is filled with a bunch of characters that is for sure
1: absolutely and that's and, and for sure. and we're, you know we're conscious of uh of keeping you long i'm very keen to get your take on like how, how is how is the rest of this commodity cycle going to play out
2: you know it's uh people are expecting it to play out like previous commodity cycles but i'm sure there'll be some uh what was somebody had a, i remember one saying uh it won't be exactly the same as the previous commodity cycle but it'll rhyme Um, I think that's a Rick Rule comment. And uh, so there will be different things about this commodity cycle. There will be a lot lot more government interference because in previous commodity cycles, the government couldn't care less about mining. They had more fun things to deal with. But now, oh, everybody's all green. Everybody's all this. Everybody's all... they're they're all thinking they need to get their fingers in 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 the pie there and start screwing things up with respect to well, let's throw some new regulations at these guys to to help them out. Well, you're not helping us out, you're not helping the world out. you're screwing everything up. so <clears throat> the government's gonna have much more involvement this time, and uh for me with how's that gonna impact me, I'm just gonna just be ultra ultra cautious on jurisdictional risk and making sure there's local buy-in local indigenous buy-in it's in you know i'll de-risk things by being in established mining camps with with strong precedents of you know value creation in the region and people who are positive with mining and as far as me getting involved in anything that's a little little sketchy in any region that's even remotely sketchy I'll, i'll stay away from that because uh
1: do you, do you ever think, I mean, your philosophy is investing in the undeveloped project and the dynamic you're describing is it's harder to 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 get these projects sometimes permitted because of these, you know, government dynamics. Do you ever think it could be a phase where it actually pays to be invested in producers instead of developers right now?
2: you know, possibly in the early stage of something, if you're expecting the commodity run, the reason I don't invest in producers is because the the key the key uh, driver for their valuation is the commodity price itself. And I do not believe I'm smart enough to to predict the commodity price. What I believe I'm smart enough to do uh, with my you know, intellectual, uh, minimal intellectual capacity is uh, go into a junior and assess whether or not they've got a big discovery at hand. And generally when I do that, if you find uh, 10 million ounces of gold, for instance, so it goes from zero, the junior goes from zero ounces of gold to 10 million ounces of gold, even if the price of gold is dropping 200 bucks over that period ounce over that period of time, you're still going to make a fortune, right? So I don't spend, you know, two seconds thinking about, well, you know, I, I get calls every day. Like, Warren, Warren, you see the price of copper is down the nickel. I said, I don't care. Like, I, I don't care. What I care about is finding 4 billion ton, you know, copper porphyry in a, in a jurisdiction that we actually mine it. That's what I care about. And if the price of copper drops from $4 to 350, I don't, it, that's not the main driver. The main driver is, uh, is the size of the discovery the greater the discovery and you know where it is and whether we could sell it to a major or not that's that's the main driver i i don't know too many people in the mining sector that have been able to uh, predict commodity prices all that well uh to the point where they actually make any significant money on it but i've been had some fortunate uh ability to uh to find some discoveries early stage that have been that were underpriced and uh jump on them pretty hard and, um, end up selling them to majors for a big price at a later date.
0: Warren, you, you wrote a great article on Brex, which we will we'll chuck in the show notes. So people down here can, can see it as well. And it sort of ties in with why you say you come on podcast. You said this guy sort of saved your ass on, on brex and gave you oh. a bit of a heads up. And <laughs> I'd, I'd love to sort of hear what are you seeing right now right. in, in mining, in the industry that you think sort of junior, like younger investors sort of need to be saved from?
2: Well, reading that article, and if you Google my name and BREX, X, uh, I think that four page article, I think is possibly one of the most insightful articles with, in, in such a, in a short little compact package where people could learn quite a number of the tricks that happened during
1: the nineties bull market in commodities. And for for the for the listeners that don't know, this is the the story that is the reason why we now have Jork reporting. Yeah, the um, yeah.
2: So I, I was a major player in the in Briex in that I was a major investor in it. I made a lot of money uh, both on the long and the short side of it. Um, and when the movie Gold came out, which is a movie about Briex, I, I thought the movie was so off base that I I thought I'd write an article. Then you're exactly right. During that article, in that article, I mentioned how I coincidentally ran into a, uh, this old mining guy in an elevator, and um, he took uh, my naive ass out for lunch one day and explained why he thought Brix was a scam. And he went through all the different reasons why, and uh, I was just dumbfounded as a young punk kid, just going, "Wow, people! The mining industry is this dishonest? It's, uh, I couldn't believe it." <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah, it was quite quite outstanding. So, what my role is really is, uh, you know, what I like to do is is explain to people some of the scams that that uh, do occur in the mining business. I try not to get specific with names because you know I'd rather not get any more death threats than I'm getting already. But there are um, there are a lot of scams out there in the mining business, or as you're aware in the Australian markets, just like in the Canadian market, there's lots of companies that are created not to ever find anything, but basically to line, the pockets of the people setting up the companies. And, uh, and that article I wrote uh, four pages, it gives you, it gives you a summary of my adventure in possibly, I think I stick my neck out and say, the absolute finest uh, mining scam in the entire world. And I had a front row seat and I wrote a little four page article explaining my little adventure in indonesia and uh, it was a fascinating time it was a fascinating story i learned a ton and um, the level of skepticism i picked up from this old timer who took the time to sit down with me over lunch and explain how the mining business worked it saved my ass uh, many times over in my career and possibly that's the reason i'm still in my career because i haven't fallen for all the scams over the years uh, quite as badly as i may have it's tough to miss them all but (laughs) I think I've had a good, a good record of staying out of the scams.
1: Are you, are you seeing many on the radar at the moment? Scams? <clears throat>
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I got into trouble the other day. I was saying some bad things about a scam. And um, <laughs> there are a lot of powerful people behind these scams sometimes because there's a lot of money at stake. Mm-hmm. So I just sort of, uh, you know, you know keep, keep my head low. My view is to t- give people the tools uh, to, to find the scams. And uh, the scams that are out there, a number, number of them are reasonably easy to figure out if you have half a brain. The most important thing for a new investor, I think, is to know there are a ton of scams out there, lots of scams. And they're run by people who are serial scammers. So if you look at their background, you find out that they really haven't made any discoveries. And when you, when you do fact check on their, on their background and what they say they've accomplished and you get into it and you find out, oh, well, yeah, they really weren't part of that discovery they claimed. Or they really weren't part of that. Or yeah, well, they were the guys. There's always the guy. If you if you got a a, a stock promoter out there, he's generally um, if he's a scammer, he's done it before. So just follow the background and find out what he's done in the past, and you're not going to be surprised that he, you don't turn from a scammer to a legitimate mining guy overnight. Well, so in fact, I've never seen a person
1: change from a scammer to a legitimate mining guy. Sometimes people get lucky; they get a discovery.
2: <laughs> I can think of, I can think of one example. Yeah, I don't want to name his name uh, because uh, <laughs> he, he had to leave the country. Uh, in his early days in his career, he had to leave the country for seven years to let the statute of limitations uh, run off. And then he came back to Canada and and uh, ran a mining company that happened to sink a sink a drill hole into one of the richest gold discoveries in the world and then spent the rest of his career
1: polishing his reputation, so. We've got a few of those in Australia too. We celebrate them.
2: <laughs> well, you know, it does happen because even scammers accidentally get lucky once in a while. And I, there's this one scammer in Toronto, or sorry, not Toronto, he's out of Vancouver. He, um, you know, and I'm gonna write a book eventually uh, in my later, later part of my career with all these scam stories, but he used to rent uh, pickup trucks to the mining company by the hour. And he'd just be fleecing the company like crazy. He, uh, he rented an ambulance for $400 a day to the company. That ambulance was basically a pickup truck with a little cap on the back and a stretcher. And that was an ambulance for $400 a day. The truck probably cost him $400. So he was busily just stripping all the assets out of this company for his own benefit. And he'd come into my office and one look at the guy, you knew the guy was a scammer. But you know, I did the work on the company and going, you know, I really think they have something here.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, the uh the the even even in that case, uh the the NPV of the company is uh is still zero if if the if all the capital gets extracted by the scammer. <laughs>
2: yeah. So what ended up happening, right, is uh other people figured this out too. And sure enough, the scammer, they remove the scammer and it's gonna be a mine. So oh, good. Yeah, so it's gonna be a mine and uh yeah, no, there's there's lots of funny, and fascinating stories like that, and uh, you know the mining history is rich in stories, and uh, you know I, I I spent four years as a kid up in Timmins, and the story of how the Hollinger mine was found, or the um, or the McIntyre mine was found, or you know Noah Timmins and how he um, how he made all his money in silver initially, and then gold, and um, there's it's just filled with the wildest and craziest characters as I'm sure there's a very, very rich history of Australian Entrepreneurs, uh, also in the mining business. Absolutely, I think yeah. the
1: scams went way back in the day. You, you know, you used to sell a right. mine and, and you'd um you'd put some some gold dust inside a a blank gun and, and you shoot the uh the walls and be be pointing to the gold dust through on the, the, the shotgun. It. Yeah, through <laughs> the, yeah, and uh, that's how you could sell a gold mine for a lot of money. Um, so I think the scams have existed forever and will will continue to. They evolve as capital markets become more sophisticated. But we're um very grateful to have a, a sophisticated eye like yourself explain. Um, explain what you look for to, to spot them, um, and I think we should definitely do this again, Warren. There's, you know, definitely two separate conversations that um, we would love to have with, with you again. One is a, a, just a, a deep dive on the Bree-X story in, in in a chronological order, and and the second one might be um, what what are the red flags to look for when when looking at a mining investment. So we'd love to do it again um, and appreciate
0: your time today. And I can definitely say you've got two people that would buy that book straight away down here. Well, <laughs> oh, thank-,
2: thank you for that. I'll, I'll put your orders in the book already. Very, thank you guys. <laughs> thanks well, thanks for really, your time, really
1: Warren. Nice and uh,
2: you take care guys. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers.
1: Cheers sorry. The information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular person before making any investment decision, you should consult with your financial advisor and consider how appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation and needs.